even from the seller perspective, you as the seller want to be savvy when it comes to setting up the deal structure that's going to work best for you. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome back to the Web Equity Show. I'm your host, Justin Cook. I'm here with my co-host extraordinaire, Ace Chapman. What's going on, buddy? What is up, sir? It's so good to be here with you, man. Yeah, dude, we were talking some fun stuff today. We're talking deal structures. How do we get the buyers and sellers together? How do we get them to work out a deal? What does that deal look like? How do we make it happen? That's what we're getting into today, and it's going to be a lot of fun because this is something we both really dig. Well, I, before this season, I felt like that all of the listeners were mostly buyers. I talked to a lot of buyers and I realized since we started this season focused on the sellers, we have a lot of listeners that are sellers out there. So this has been cool bringing them out of the out of hiding and interacting with us now. Yeah, they're curious, man. I mean, there's a lot of people that are kind of building online businesses and, you know, either they've never heard about selling their business before or you know, they're just now hearing about it and they're like, really? This is an asset that people want to buy. Yeah. Get out of here, right? It's, it's pretty cool. So like now we're kind of getting into the nitty gritty of getting the deal done. I mean, we've talked about the due diligence from the seller perspective, getting ready, having all of the paperwork together. And that's not near as much fun, at least to a guy like me, as getting into the deal structure. So even from the seller perspective, you as the seller want to be savvy when it comes to setting up the deal structure that's going to work best for you. Yeah, this is the shit that gets sellers super nervous though, right? Especially when you're trying to work out a deal and you're like, am I getting screwed? How am I getting screwed? And so I think uh, hopefully we can cut through some of that clutter, cut through some of that noise and and explain you know, what's good from a seller's perspective in terms of deal structures. And we should mention that you know, it may be true that 100% cash upfront offer at your list price. I mean, that's exactly what you want, exactly what you're asking for. But sometimes there are deal structures that may actually be better for the seller. We're going to talk about that a little bit as well. So basically, one of the things we did before, and this was back season two, episode seven, if you want to go back to that, we talked about deal structures. But at that point, we talked about it from the perspective of buyers. So some of these things will be obviously the same structure, but we want to talk about it from the seller's standpoint and some of the risk factors you want to take into consideration and benefits, pros and cons of when and how to use those deal structures from the seller's perspective. Yeah, but I was thinking about this. It's a little awkward because I feel like just last season we were like, okay, here's how you pull one over on a seller. Here's <laughs> here's how you need to work it out, right? Do this, do that. And now we're like, all right, sellers, here's your ammunition. Here's where you're coming in this deal. Yeah. <laughs> Even the playing field. Yeah, for sure. All right, man, before we do that, let's do some listener love. First up, we've got a couple of five-star iTunes reviews. First one says, insightful info from two clear experts, five stars from Cole South, 
Great actionable content from two guys who really know their stuff. Definitely changed the way I looked at things when it comes to buying and selling online businesses. Highly recommended. Thanks, Cole. We had another one. Amazing podcast. 10 out of 10. Five stars from Music Guru. All seasons are really well done. I've been binging my way through them. Super informative and insightful advice from seasoned entrepreneurs. Keep up the great work, Ace and Justin. Well, thank you, Music Guru. Maybe you can teach us a little bit about the music industry. I don't know anything about that <laughs> business. You know a little bit, Ace, no? <laughs> no, I've, I, as many deals as I've done, I've never done anything in the music industry. Did have a modeling agency for a little while, but yeah, that's as close to like the entertainment world I, I, as I got to. <laughs> the modeling agency—that—that's kind of a weird business, huh? Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. We supplied. It's a whole world. I mean, we everybody focuses on the big time models. But every advertisement you see on TV, every little local car newspaper ad, you know, we'd have people that even today, people still have to get models for print ads because that still exists. So, yeah, all those small things, we represented folks that did all that stuff. Models for print ads, man, that sounds like a dying industry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's like, let me get in and out of this. The biggest thing with that was just the headache. Like, yeah, someone's like, what do you do, modeling for uh, for print ads? Someone's like, oh, <laughs> so sorry about that. Like, what, what's, your, what's your next you job? Better. Are you training? Are you in school now? <laughs> you better be looking for your next opportunity because this is not on the uptrend. Oh, that's so funny, man. All right, man, let's get into the heart of this week's episode. All right, buddy, we're talking deal structures for sellers, and there are seven main ways to structure a deal. We're going to cover the advantages and disadvantages of each from a seller's perspective, like when to use one, when not to use one as a seller. I think it's important to keep in mind, Ace, that you can mix and match with these deal structures. So it's not like you only do number one, you only do number two, you only do number three. Like you can use two, three, and a dash of number five and get the deal done. You know what I mean? And when you're saying that too, you want to kind of uh, just mention it depends on the size of the deal. You know, one of the things that does get frustrating is when somebody's doing a small, $80,000 deal and they're trying to mix <laughs> two and three of these. But the normal deal structure, especially when you get over a quarter million, half a million, is uh, definitely to have two or three of these. So sellers want to expect that. Yeah, I'm doing a $15,000 Amazon affiliate site purchase. I'm going to give you 50% up front. The other 50% over three years, that's going to be an earnout based on profit, maybe a little balloon payment. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Walk away from that buyer. <laughs> yeah, right. Let, let's get into this. Number one is seller financing. And basically, seller financing is it's an easy ask from the buyer's perspective. It's just saying, you know, hey, seller, I'll give you 80% in cash. I'd like to finance the other 20% over some period of time. Sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's 12 months, sometimes it's 36 months. It just depends on what they're asking for and what the terms are. But from a seller's perspective, if you're going to use this, one of the things you really want to look at is seeing how you can hold some leverage. You know, yeah. if you agree to finance the deal and they, you know, retain all full control of the business, how do you have any leverage to make sure they pay that additional 15, 20, 30%, whatever they finance? And one of the ways you can do this is to hold the domain. We actually do this for some of our clients and buyer flippers where we'll hold on to the domain during the kind of seller financing period. You can also find escrow companies to do this. Attorneys will do this for you. So there are places you can go to you know, hold some piece of the business in escrow while you get the financing piece done. 
you also want to trust that the buyer is going to continue to run and grow the business through the financing period. So if you get a sense that that's not likely, that the buyer is not going to be successful, let's say over a 36-month period, you know, doing an earnout, the business goes kaput, you're not likely to get <laughs> the rest of your seller financing. So that's definitely something to consider. It's always, you know, as we said in the other episode, when we we're pumping up the buyers, telling them what they should do to use sellers, you know, we told them, look, always ask for seller financing. You know, what can it hurt? They could say no. From a seller's perspective, you should always ask for an interest rate. Get something attractive and interest on the financing you're doing for them. You're taking a risk. So why not get a return on that risk? And, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, but it's one of those things that I'm amazed at the sellers that don't ask for this, and we get a lot of interest-free loans on the seller financing. So hopefully nobody is listening to this that's going to sell me a business. Do you feel like you're just kind of screwing yourself <laughs> for this episode? You're like, here's exactly what you need to do to charge me more money. Yeah, yeah. Like as soon as the seller tells me they listen to the Web Equity Show, I'm like, well, next. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, yeah, I got the next guy. Uh, so, so here's one I think is interesting. Let me see if I can explain it properly. So the idea is if you can't get more than 50% of the difference in the offers up front, you may not want to do it. So let me give an example. Let's say there's a $700,000 list price and you've got two offers as a seller. You got either 500,000 in cash up front or you've got 400,000 and $300,000 over 12 months. Right? So the difference between 400 and $500,000 is $100,000. If you're not getting that or better in the earnouts, so if you're not getting 200,000 or more in the earnout, you shouldn't do it. So for example, in that same scenario, if you're doing 400,000 up front and let's say 150,000 in cash over 12 months, to hell with that, take the 500,000 up front. That's my recommendation. I don't know what do you think, Ace? Yeah, I love that rule. I mean, it's great to have rules of thumb. At the end of the day, it really comes down to what the sellers are really comfortable with and and some of the things that we'll talk about with when to use, when not to use and depends on the buyer. But yeah, like having that rule I think it at least gets you from being way out of whack where, you know, you've got 400,000 and the difference in the price is so tiny that, you know, it's not worth stretching out over the course of, you know, five years or something crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it matters too, like how long of a period you're financing it for. So you want, you need maybe a bit less if it's only 12 months, you need a bit more if it's 24 months, you need even more than that if it's 36 months. So, you know, make sure that you're getting more in the earnout, depending on how long the earnout period is in terms of like total value for the business. Sometimes you don't want to use seller financing. One of them would be if you can't live with never seeing a finance payment. So the cash up front you're getting now, it's not ideal, but if you only got that, and you would hate yourself, you would cry every morning when you woke up, and you just couldn't go on, like that would be a bad deal. You need to get at least enough cash up front, whereas if you got nothing else, you wouldn't be happy, but you could live with it. This is a good point to mention, that this is risky. You know, I think some people take for granted, it's like, oh, like I'm gonna get this certain amount over this period of time, and they still feel like, okay, that's my money, and it's definitely coming. But, you know, the reason we mentioned this is because, no, this is a risk. You are financing something. You are the bank. Sometimes the bank doesn't get paid and they take losses for that. So you want to really treat it that way when you're setting up this kind of deal. 
I generally would say, you know, as a seller, don't get less than 50% cash up front. Now, I've seen yep. those deals done. I think we've been a part of those deals where sometimes mm-hmm. it happens. But as a general rule, yeah, less than 50% cash up front doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. And here's the thing, again, that we have to preface. It does depend on your business. Yeah. You know, there are businesses out there that listen to this and they just don't have a great business or it's not, it's very, very young or it just has issues. And they're like, no, you know, Justin, they said never to take less than 50%. And it's like, if you see across the board that nobody's willing to pay you that and you really do want to sell, then that's when it's time to understand like, okay, well, my business in the marketplace there, I'm getting feedback that it doesn't align with that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's right. If you get a bunch of people that are coming from different places and different approaches to buying businesses, and it's kind of like, you're always hearing like less than 50% cash up front, uh, something going on there. There's some trust <laughs> issues. There's some reasons that they won't give you more than that. Probably another reason you don't want to use, if you think that it's unlikely the buyer will run the biz and or pay you out over the period, if they've got Say you run a credit report or you've got to have a history of not paying their bills or something, I would require more cash up front. Not that I wouldn't necessarily do the deal, but I require more cash up front and put less into financing. All right, man, let's talk about earnouts, which is number two. There's a couple of different ways you can do an earnout. The first one would be like milestone based. So let's say, you know, I do an earnout that's based over three months, over six months, over nine months, over 12 months. You hit those certain milestones and you get paid out at those milestones. They can be just actually milestones in the actual business too, if you accomplish this or accomplish that, although that's much more rare. You can also do an earnout that's profit-based, that's tied to the net profit of the business. Although as a seller, I don't really recommend that. Then the third one would be revenue-based, so tied to the overall gross revenue and kind of growth rate of the business. So the business continues to grow and do well, you're paid out no matter how profitable the business is. So let's talk about when a seller might use an earnout. If you believe the buyer is a really excellent plan or opportunity to grow the business, like you buy in, right? You're buying into what they're doing. And you're like, you know what? I'll take an earnout. I think your plan's gonna grow well. I know you want to save a little bit of that cash to buy inventory or like put it back into the business for growth. I believe in what you're doing. Yeah, I'll take an earnout that's based on gross profit because it gives me a, a chance for upside, right? Like if you're able to grow it over the next 12 or 24 months, I can make a lot more money than taking the cash up front. So I'm in on that deal. And it also shows to that buyer, you get the better buyer when your offer to them entices them to come to you because you still want to understand as a seller, you are competing against the other sellers. So if you have a seller or you've got one seller as a buyer that says, all right, I trust you. I can tell you've done this before. I'm willing to finance this 50% on an earnout. And then you get that same buyer and you're like, man, this guy could really, really kill it. But you have this rule where you're like, oh, well, I really want 25%. The 25% that goes to somebody who's going to kill the business and has no talent is a lot worse than the 50% to somebody who's going to kill it in the business. Yeah, I've seen this happen recently with uh, FBA businesses where they want to keep a little bit of cash out of the deal that the buyer does so that they can reinvest in inventory and they've got a really good plan, a good experience there. And you see a lot of FBA businesses or SBA sellers that are maybe less experienced than the buyers. And so they're like, huh, okay, yep, I'll partner up on this deal with you, let you keep a little extra cash, and then I'll get a piece of a long term. Another thing worth earnouts, if you're going to be providing uh, consulting or guidance longer term, I think earnouts can be helpful because 
if you're going to be for the next 12 months, you're going to do monthly calls, you're going to do quarterly meetups or whatever meetings with them, you want to have some upside in kind of the longer term success of the business. So if you're going to be doing that and staying involved and doing some consulting, you might as well get some of that upside. And then I think one of the things you can do as a seller and to your benefit if you're doing earnouts is you can put in things like monthly or quarter minimums. Like I need to at least get paid this amount. You can cap the time frame so it needs to be fully paid out by this date. Or then you can use it in conjunction with the balloon payment or balloon loan, which we're going to talk about next. So there are ways to like kind of yeah. kind of keep it just not going forever, right? Try to like make sure you lock up a minimum per month or per quarter. Make sure that you're not going to be doing this earnout for the next eight years, things like that. <laughs> the other part of this is when not to use it, and it's one of the things from a buyer's perspective. You know, we really encourage this back in season two that you want it tied to the profit as a buyer. Well, the truth is, as a seller, you really want it tied to the revenue. You want it tied to something that isn't as easily manipulated. And with the profit, that's something that can be manipulated. And one of the ways around it, if you do have a buyer that's determined to really focus on the profit, is you can basically agree on the onset. You're going to agree these are the expenses that are going to be included. You can't just come in and spend all the money and say, oh, well, you know, that means there's no profit for you. I'm not making payments. And you get into that eight year long earnout like we talked about. Yeah. The other part is you want to stay away from the newbie buyers when you're doing an earnout. You know, they're going to talk about how you combine this with some of the other things. But, you know, if you tie this to, let's say, a balloon payment, maybe that's a, a little more secure depending on how much cash they have. But if you don't believe in their plan for your business, you don't think they're going to be able to grow the business or they're just brand new, this is one you want to be careful of. Then the final thing is you don't want to be in any way tied to the business anymore. If you know I'm completely done with this business, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Like as soon as this thing closed, I want to walk away and never have an email come into my inbox about this again. Then you want to stay away from this because a lot of times the reason the buyer is going to do this is he does want you tied into the business. And then at the end of the day, there may be something where the earnouts go down and you've got to get more involved. But at the regardless, you're going to have to be you know, collecting and making sure that th those payments are coming in. Yeah. Sometimes you're just done, right, man. You know, like just, you're just not emotionally connected to the business anymore. You just don't have that. You're just not interested. And if you don't want to be involved in it, that's not a good time to be getting in bed with a new buyer who's all motivated and fired up about it. And now you're trying to track <laughs> these earnouts, or you just don't want to be involved with the buyer, you know, himself or herself either. Right. That happens too. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be associated with this person. No. <laughs> Let's talk about the third uh, option you have, which is balloon loans. Now, we talked about using this in coordination with earnouts, and we'll talk about you know how that works. But you know, one of the ways you can do a balloon loan is a super short-term one. So it's like thirty or sixty or ninety days. Normally, this is like after some you know fixed thing has happened, so like training, right? I want to make sure I'm a newbie. I want to make sure that I've got some training. And so it's kind of a drop sell for you as a seller. Uh, you could say, look, I'm going to ensure that you get the training because I'm going to, you're giving me 90% up front. I'll take 10% after the 30 days of training. Just like I said, I would get you up to speed. I'll get paid based on that training, things like that. You can also attach it to seller financing or an earnout, And it's a way to just cap it. So, you know, you say it like, let's say it's based on profit, but it has to break certain minimums per month or it doesn't get paid. 
but the total amount is $100,000. So it's based on profit. Some months, if I don't hit certain tiers, I don't get paid or whatever. That could drag out for two years or three years. And I'm like, no. At the end of 12 months, I want my $100,000. So if in 12 months, I've made 60 back, you owe me 40 at the end of 12 months. You know what I mean? So it's a yeah. way to still get, you know, just to, to cap it at 12 or six months or 18 months or whatever it is you want. The other thing you can do, which I rarely see, is a straight balloon loan, you know, where you're like, look, you know, we'll just, I'll pay you 80% up front. You're going to pay me 20% in 24 months, or you're going to pay me, you know, 10% in 12 months, 10% in, in another 12 months. You just don't see those as often. They're normally tied to some amount of money coming in over time. Yeah. The biggest danger with this for you as a seller is that buyer kind of, you know, hits the dirt with the business and, you know, this is just getting through. It's not making any money. And you really don't have any way of keeping tabs on it until you hit that two-year mark. And they're like, hey, this thing just isn't working. I mean, when I've sold a business earnout, in addition to me getting money on a regular basis, which is always fun, <laughs> but there's also the bigger factor of each month, I can kind of see where's the business trending. I can see if I need to check in and say, hey, what's going on? Do we yeah. need to figure something out? That allows me to keep tabs. So when should you use the balloon loan? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's I'll just say really quick. I don't really like balloon loans, man. I got to say, I... You know, the thing I don't like about balloon loans is the fact that, you know, if you're not staying involved in the business, you're not involved with it, and you have a balloon loan at 12 months or 24 months or whatever, trying mm-hmm. to come back and collect on that when you now have zero relationship, you're putting the buyer in a position where, okay, they agreed to it, but now it's been two years. Who knows where <laughs> they're at or where they're up to? And trying to go and yep. collect is just a really tough thing to have to do. But there are some times where you'd want to use it. It is. That's the bottom line. This isn't something, especially a loan, that you want to use. You want to use it in combination with some of the other things. But, you know, there are some times. So, like I was saying, like you want to use this as a tack on to an earnout. You know, there's a certain earnout period that allows them to come in, get comfortable with the business, make sure you're still somewhat tied in for a year. You want those checks to be as big as possible on a monthly basis. But then at the end of the year, they pay off whatever that balance is. The other time is you can use this as a negotiation tactic, you know, especially if you have that buyer and you feel like, hey, this is an easy business to run, even though the person may be, let's say, a, a newbie. You know they're going to be able to learn the business and run it, but this is the first time they've ever done anything like this. And so they're just nervous and scared. And so you can use this as a negotiation tactic and say, hey, you know, I know the price is here. Here's what I'm willing to do. We'll do this payment of earnout on 25% of the deal. And then you give me the balloon at the end of it. And, you know, one of the other times that I think is important to kind of have as a component of this is doing this in deals where you do have that in-between person like a broker because you need somebody who's going to monitor, keep both sides accountable for what they're supposed to do and make sure at the end that, you know, there's somebody in between that's holding those assets so that if the person doesn't pay you, the seller, 
you're able to get the business back and continue running that business and then go get to sell it again. You know, even if it was messed up, you can fix it and sell it all over again. Yeah. I mean, there are, I think, quite a few reasons to not use a balloon loan, definitely not as a standalone, but even sometimes in conjunction with earnouts or seller financing, if you don't really have any clarity, the buyer is going to have the cash at the end of the period. Like if they're putting yep. all their cash into the deal, you don't see that the business is going to be able to cash them up in that period of time. That's probably not the best deal. Or if that end of deal cash is critical for you. So if you've got a whole bunch of money tied up in the you know end of deal or end of you know term balloon payment, and you've got your hopes and dreams kind of tied to that money, that's not a good idea. There's a chance it's not going to get paid. So be careful with that. Let's talk the fourth option, which is in perpetuity payments. And this is generally used in conjunction with like continued work, or if you're going to keep you know, PBN links or some kind of like SEO strategy going for the business long term. And this is something that a seller, you as a seller, can offer to the buyer if they're worried about, let's say, for example, you pulling the PBN links or that you're not going to do continued work that you've agreed to do, right? So it's a way for you know them to basically give you money, get you used to getting that money in and not wanting to <laughs> turn away. It's something you can ask for if you have PBN links to it. It's something you can ask for if you're going to be doing continued work. You can basically set up a longer-term relationship with them. And sometimes that's a valuable thing to have. Sometimes like the buyer is in a space that you're interested in or that you have other interests in and you're like, look, I want to maintain a relationship with you. I'll continue to do this, this, or that for the business and we can potentially do other deals together in the future. Yeah, that's so really powerful even as a buyer. I love to do deals like this because the seller built the business. You know, when I'm talking to a seller, it's like, okay, you're the person that's behind this. And so if I can keep them tied in for a longer period of time, that's a win for me. Yeah, you don't want to use this, I think, if you're cutting your price to more than you would make over 24 months. So say, for example, that, you know, you're giving them a deal, right, for $50,000 off or $100,000 off or whatever, and you're not making more than that in 24 months with them, then it's probably not really worth your while. You also don't want to do this deal if you don't want a long-term partnership with the buyer or any relationship to the business. You know, an in-perpetuity payment for work that you're doing or something that you're doing, it definitely keeps you involved with both the business and the buyer. And if that's not interesting to you, which it may not be, and you need to think about if you're going to be agreeing to that deal, you probably shouldn't do it. All right, man, the fifth (laughs) point is outside financing. And this would be hard money, credit cards, personal lines of credit, you know, SBA loans, bringing other investors, you know, all different, you know, forms of outside financing, which we're seeing a bit more in our industry. A lot of it's just not the institutional money hasn't been available, but we're, we're seeing a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to see how that shapes out in a couple of years. When to use, if you've got a verified buyer that is pre-approved in some form, that's helpful. If they've gone through the work and the hassle of getting pre-approved for an SBA loan, for example, that may be good for you, may be helpful for you. Or when you don't have other similar offers on the table with cash up front. So if it's kind of like, you know, this is the offer you got and the only one you've got so far, you might as well go down the rabbit hole a little bit unless you get something else on the table. The other thing that I want to mention here is that it's really powerful to just go and get these things pre-approved yourself so that you're not even depending on that potential buyer. You're building the relationship. You're going to, let's say it's you're going to do an SBA loan. If I'm a seller and I know, hey, this deal, probably buyers are going to want some financing on it. 
I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to get my deal pre-approved by the bank. And then anytime somebody contacts me and they're saying, hey, you know, I think I want to get an SBA loan. I want to contact them with my bank. That way I know it's real. I know when they're getting approved, it's by the people that know my deal. And that makes things a lot, lot easier on both sides. That's true. It's usually attached to the deal, the SBA loan is. So, you know, they're going to need to know those details. If you do that as a seller, you're going to make it a lot easier for your potential buyer. Also, you're opening or widening your buyer pool. So, you know, maybe they don't have all the cash upfront required, but with the SBA loan, it gets them there and gives them the opportunity to buy your business, which they may not have had otherwise. There's sometimes you don't want to work with outside financing or buyers with outside financing though. You know, one of the times you'd not want to use it is if they haven't started the approval process or they don't have anything in place or, you know, because sometimes it can take quite a while. It can take a while to get the loans or the money put together. And you may not want to lock yourself in with an exclusive period with someone who's trying to get financing. I really suggest that thing is to not be exclusive with them while they're trying to get the financing because you may be losing deals that would be otherwise interested in your business. The other thing is if you have a better offer on the table and it doesn't require them to go out and get financing, it just kind of makes it easy. So, you know, if all sides, both sides are equal and you've got one with cash in hand, you know, the bird in the hands were two in the bush. Isn't that the, the saying, buddy? Yeah, yeah, it is. So be smart. <laughs> uh, number six is seller retained equity. This is just basically where the seller's keeping a piece of the business long term. It's pretty illiquid, their position. They're keeping like 10% of the business or whatever, 20%. But there are some times where this is interesting. Let's say the business uh-huh. is growing really, really fast, super quick. And you as a seller don't really want to sell, but you need a good chunk of cash for your other business. For whatever reason, you've got this development project, you've got these developers, whatever you have to pay for, and you need that cash for that business. But you're like, God, I hate to drop this one because it's quick, it's fast moving, and it's got opportunity. You may want to keep some equity in it. And I think critically is if you trust the buyer to grow or expand the business really rapidly. Let's say you know the buyer or kind of know their story and what they're up to. It may be of interest, particularly if it's like a strategic or somebody you've worked with before. You may even do a deal where you know you take 25% less cash and only keep 20% of equity because you believe kind of in the upside and the value so much. One of the things that I think this is we're seeing a lot right now of this happening, and it hadn't really been the case until the popularity of the FBA business model in particular. It's just people have an amazing business. It's going really, really well. They're making a ton of money and they're completely broke. Yeah. (laughs) And it's because of the amount of cash that it takes to get the inventory, you know, keep it there, make sure that you don't run out of inventory and just all of those things. You're tying up a lot of cash. And so depending on the deal, these kind of deals can really make sense in the right business when you know there here's this problem that we have right now this person can relieve that problem and it could be something totally different like you know facebook marketing expert that you really believe in whatever but they're bringing something to the table money or skills and i know that's going to have a direct effect on the bottom line 
Yeah, in terms of like not wanting to keep seller retained equity, I mean, it's not very common. So most of the time, <laughs> sellers aren't doing this. They're not keeping a piece of the business. I'd say there are more very specific reasons to do it. Most of the time, you wouldn't. But when not uh-huh. to use, you know, if you don't trust or believe in the buyer's plan or the, the buyer, you know, himself or herself, or you just, again, have no interest in being tied to the business long term, seller retained equity definitely ties you in. It's a passive position. It's also illiquid, as I mentioned before. So trying to get out of that, I mean, you're basically stuck on the whims of the majority shareholder. So whatever they're trying to do and with the business, you're kind of stuck with and you can work it out with operating agreements. But now we're getting to this like, you know, it's just it can be messy. So you better you got to be on the same page with the buyer if you're going to make this work. So let's talk number seven, which is kind of the investor sweat equity partnership. We just talked about before where, you know, you've got someone who's kind of the operator. you got an investor and they're kind of looking for deals. Maybe they got a couple of investors lined up. As a seller, you don't particularly care about this deal. I mean, if you've got a much larger deal, let's say seven figure plus, it's likely not going to be, you know, one guy looking to buy your business. It's often going to be partners. It's going to be operators with investors. There's going to be multiple people involved in the deal. So if it's larger, just know that you're likely to be working with kind of multiple parties. When you don't want to do this as a seller, where this gets kind of convoluted is when there's no clear decision maker. If you're working with a team and you talk to Harry one week and then you talk to Frank the next week and neither one of them are making decisions and they say, oh, you need to talk to Sally because she does this, Pete, and you're like, oh my God, I don't know who I'm dealing with here. I don't know. Like They don't seem to have their stuff together. I don't know how to do this deal. That can be uh, really messy. And it's especially true with kind of new funds or with these kind of new equity partners where they don't yep. really know what they're doing and they're trying to figure it out and see who's responsible for what. And you've got multiple decision makers. It can be a bit of a mess as from a seller's perspective. And that's especially true if you've got another offer on the table. If it's close and you're not dealing with eight decision makers and you know it's a couple of people and they seem to have their stuff together, it's pretty clear who the better buyer for you is going to be. Yeah, one of the things I will say is, you know, it's one thing to talk about how big a headache that's going to be on the back end, you know, once you own the business or, you know, what's going on there, if they're completely new and it's a new group. But the other side is it's also a really big pain during the due diligence process. I mean, Mm, we've had people come to us and get deals done because, you know, they're frustrated that they've spent two months and all the investors have different questions and people are holding back them. They don't want to close the deal. And, you know, all of these different things that come into play that just cause deals to fall apart in the end. So, you know, if you're deciding between a couple of buyers and one is one real decision maker and the other is a, a group, that's something to keep in mind before you even sign the contract. Absolutely. And it's pretty clear kind of the the newbies, they got multiple decision makers versus the groups that kind of have their stuff together. Uh You'll know it when you see it. (laughs) That's the the best way to put it. All right, man, let's wrap this episode up. Uh, Just to touch on a couple of points. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, full cash upfront offer is usually the best deal for the seller, but not necessarily always, especially if you really believe in the buyer and kind of their plan and you want to be associated with that business. It's better to negotiate a beneficial deal structure than not to get a deal at all. Again, that's usually true. It's not always true. But if you're getting a deal structure that works for you and you understand which ones are better for you, which ones are not, I think that's good. One thing I'll say too is you should rely on your broker. Brokers can be really helpful when it comes to deal structuring because, and this is the dirty little secret, 
they're more interested in getting a deal done, not necessarily getting a deal done with terms that are favorable to you as a seller. So your broker's job is to get the deal done, not necessarily to get you the best deal, if that makes sense. They normally get a percentage of the deal. So if they knock a few points off of the final price, or they knock some dollars off the final price, it's only a small percentage to them, so they'd rather get the deal done. So just keep that in mind and make sure that the terms and that the structure makes sense for you. Go back and re-listen to this episode episode if you don't think your broker's doing you right. Come have a listen to this one. And then if you're not using a broker, it's always a good idea to get a second opinion from someone who actually has experience in selling businesses. Ace, we talked before we got on the show, man. Like this (laughs) crushes my soul. If I have a friend, like a a friend, right? A, A close friend that sells their business and doesn't even call me. It just, oh, I thought you were busy or just like, no, how yeah. dare you? Like, how dare, like you absolutely should call me and talk to me about it. You know, you don't have to sell with me, but like, let me at least talk to you, buddy. Like, let me at least give yeah. you some advice. Let me at least see what, you know, hear what you're doing. It may be a bad deal. Like, oh my God, I can get you a much, but like not as a, a salesy way, but like, no, 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 we can, we can, it's worth more than that. We can do more. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so funny, man. I've definitely had it happen on the buy side where, you know, I've had friends that I sit down, I talk to them about this stuff. It's just on a very high level. I'm not, you know, we're go- we're not going in depth. And then they come back a year later and they're like, oh, I need help with this business. It's a nightmare. Da-da-da-da. I'm like, what? When well, you bought a business, you never mentioned it to me? Like, what are you, what were you thinking? So yeah, it, that's amazing. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> All right, that's it for this episode. If you dig it, please head over to webequityshow.com and leave us a comment to let us know what you think. You can also drop us a review on iTunes and we'd greatly appreciate it. Next week, we're going to be talking about negotiations, how to negotiate the deal with your buyer, you know, when they say this, what do they really mean? Those are the details we're going to get into. I hope you stick with us. Thanks so much for checking out the show. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com slash gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 